I'm Kyle Salmon. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times, and how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds, at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 37, we read Why Liberalism Failed by Patrick Deneen, published in 2018. Born in 1964, Patrick Deneen received a BA from Rutgers University in 1986 and a PhD in 1995. Just as a quick side note, that's nine years of PhD training. That's a long time. All right, he taught political philosophy at Princeton from 1997 to 2005 and at Georgetown from 2005 to 2012 when he joined the faculty at Notre Dame University. He's the author and editor of several books and numerous articles. His teaching interests focus on the history of political thought, American political thought, and the role of religion in politics. Deneen is Catholic, and that really informs his thinking. Lives in South Bend, Indiana with his wife and three children. So last episode, we read uh, von Mises on liberalism. Liberalism meaning uh, classical liberalism, free market, individual autonomy. And he and Fukuyama, as we read last season, argue that uh, liberalism is the best possible system. Deneen is here to say that even this best system of liberalism has fallen short and is possibly headed for failure. He says, liberalism has failed not because it fell short, but because it was true to itself. A political philosophy launched to foster greater equity, defend pluralism in different cultures and beliefs, protect human dignity, and expand liberty. Well, in practice, it actually generates titanic inequality, enforces uniformity and homogeneity, fosters material and spiritual degradation, and, and undermines freedom. He says the ruins it has produced are the signs of its very success. Is a pretty provocative claim. And so his bottom line here in this book is that liberalism has failed because it succeeded in its mission, but because it succeeded, the gap has grown between what the ideology claims and the lived experience of human beings under its domain. I think this is a pretty provocative book. He had many, many interesting insights that we're going to unpack today that I found fascinating. Yeah, it was, it was really, um, it was something reading this right after von Mises because it's a real whipsaw effect. You know, you're, I mean, I still had that last episode in my mind as I'm reading this one and it's, Whoa, he's, you know, we're going back and forth, but it's interesting because we're, t they're, they're both very clear writers. So, I mean, I, mm -hmm. it, it was kind of a pleasure to read. Sometimes we read these books and it's a little fuzzy. Um, Deneen is, uh, very orderly at laying out his thesis here. And I think if we look back at von Mises' point that liberalism was not a universal ideology of life, it was just a way to organize government and economy. I think Deneen's taking that point and saying, yeah, but it, in doing so, it's, it's so efficient at that, that it really pushes everything else away. And the kind of background values and virtues on which liberalism depended as it rose to prominence 200 years ago and 100 years ago are now so degraded by just 
uh, contact with the, the universal ideals of liberalism that they're they're falling away and uh, what is left is a people who don't who are living a complete life based on an incomplete system yeah so let's unpack this a little bit so he starts by telling us on the one hand on the in individual autonomy civil liberties he says liberalism was premised upon the limitation of government and the liberation of the individual from arbitrary political control but government has now expanded into every area of life surveillance and control of movements finances and even deeds and thoughts so these civil liberties that we cherish and and uh, highly value such as individual conscience and freedom of religion of association and speech and self-governance well these have each been extensively compromised by the expansion of government activity and the expansion continues largely as a response to people's felt loss of power over the trajectory of their lives is what he's arguing in so many distinct spheres leading to demands for further intervention by the one entity even nominally under their control and that's namely government and our government readily complies Mm -hmm. moving like a ratchet wrench he says always in one direction enlarging and expanding in response to civic grievances ironically leading in turn to citizens's further experience of distance and powerlessness so when it comes to the liberation of the individual we actually need the government to impose it right i mean and he's going to argue this even further but we have to have the government step in and let's 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 step back and think about the state of nature that we're autonomous, uh, you know, individuals before government. And, you know, we talked about this again last week with, with uh, Von Mises. And we came together to form government in order to protect one another from each other. And what Deneen is arguing is that's exactly what's happened. You know, there was, well, he, he will argue that there really never was a this, uh, you know, mythical uh, state of nature origin. But in any case, you know, liberalism and this um, the ideology of liberalism put into effect actually does exactly you know what Locke had in mind which was you know you need government to set, to keep people from harming one another and the more sophisticated the the civilization you know the society the more sophisticated and imposing becomes the government you know in order to keep people from you know harming one another or to you know create space in that way and and we we're familiar with this when it comes to the you know, liberty and autonomy, he says, comes to us courtesy of massive, sometimes intrusive, always solicitous, ever-present government. You know, for example, like, you know, telling us we can't segregate men's and women's bathrooms, for example, you know, or, mm. or you know, every small business must install a wheelchair ramp. You know, maybe that's a good thing, but, you know, it's, it's all these different things in order to make sure that everyone has this individual autonomy and, and can fill their own, you know, individual dreams well, we need a government to step in and sort of impose it. Yeah. And it, it's, it's counterintuitive because we think about, we think about classical liberalism as existing alongside these uh, existing institutions that already had their sort of structures of life and traditions and, you know, ways of organizing themselves, be it like small town life or church life or, you know, the, what kind of organizations that Tocqueville talked about often as things that Americans spontaneously organized because we didn't have government doing these things and we just, you know, things need to get done. So people would organize together and kind of make these institutions of their own, you know, not imposed from above, but sort of out of necessity, they would come together and form things. And 
I think in Deneen's telling the the constant drive towards individual autonomy, whether it be on the right or the left, which he kind of thinks are the same thing in our in our system, because they're both driving towards individual liberty, individual autonomy. And that's true. I mean, we saw I mean the, the new left in the sixties and then the the sort of Reaganite right in the 80s both emphasized individual liberty in their own way and, you know, for different goals, but they're, they were emphasized the same idea. And he says, that, Deneen says that in doing that, they, um, it degrades all these other institutions because now it's sort of a, it's put into people's heads that you are an individual. Mm-hmm. Your sphere of freedom must be expanded so that nobody can control your life. And that is what tradition does and, and culture does as it controls our lives in in ways that are often beneficial, but it you know, it orders society. And we've been talking about this, we talked about it a lot last season. The idea that, you know, people came out of traditional societies in in pre liberal days and it was constraining, but it was also orderly and, and in a way comforting to most people to know this is how things work in this town. This is how things work in this country. Here's the order. So liberalism offers us the freedom to say, well, this order is a little messed up in this place. I mean, look at this guy who's in charge. He shouldn't be, you know, that sort of thing you can, or, you know, it offers the opportunity for say family order that is disordered that, you know, if the family patriarch is abusive and a tyrant, you can leave, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's a good thing in liberalism, but in applying it to every family, it's disrupting even the good ones, which is most families. Yeah, yeah. It's disrupting the good communities that were healthy. And in its place is nothing but the state. You know, the state's the only thing that survived. And so people where they might have used to make a community organization or build a church or build a, a volunteer group will now turn to Uncle Sam or state capitals or city hall and it, it i hadn't thought about it this way i thought this was an interesting insight of the book is that, that individualism demands statism that's yeah yeah it's it's kind of it's kind of wild but I, I i think he makes some good points yeah and to, to that point he's I, th- I think it's worth reading what he says here liberty requires liberation from all forms of associations and relationships from family to church from schools to village and community that exerted control over behavior through informal expectations and norms. That's what you've just described. And I think when it comes to liberty and the liberal uh, project, this is kind of the the left's goal, right? As we they want to throw off tradition. But what what he says with the liberation of individuals from these associations, there is more need to regulate behavior through the imp- imposition of positive law, and thus uh, liberalism culminates in the liberated individual and the controlling state. And I found that uh, hugely insightful too. So, but you know, many of our listeners, uh, being conservative, might say like, "Yeah, that's right." You know, but uh, all you know, all these you know, the government trying to tell us, trying to create freedom for individuals, and we've had an absolute like whirlwind of of social changes. You know, recently with the Supreme Court decision on gay marriage, and you know, all these different things that you know, often people uh, on the right or religious folks are just really feel their head spinning. I also felt like his his insight here on on uh, the other half of liber- of uh, classical liberalism was super insightful too and that's on the economic side. He says there always has been and probably always will be 
economic inequality, but few civilizations appear to have so extensively perfected the separation of winners from losers or created such a mass apparatus to winnow those who will succeed from those who will fail. This is something we've talked about mm-hmm. quite a few times in that the, the sorting machine and the ability of you know the free market to really cause the cream to rise to the top, so to speak, and, and uh, that leaves a lot of folks behind. But here's the, here's the main kicker that I found really interesting. He says, the expansion of markets requires an extensive and growing state structure as well. Okay, so he says, while conservative liberals express undying hostility to state expansion, they consistently turn to its capacity to secure national and international markets as a way of overcoming any local forms of governance or traditional norms that might limit the market's role in the life of a community. And I see this firsthand, of course, because, you know, oftentimes, you know, as a free market conservative, I don't want a million state laws, you know, governing mm-hmm. certain business activity because then the businesses, they just can't operate. Right. And so we say, no, what we need is the government to step in and stop them from doing that. You know, we need a federal government to come in. And, um, yeah. And it's, it, it's, it's just, it's in these, um, he, he makes a point that it's in the breaking down part of liberalism that each left and right is successful. You know, there's a left, left-leaning liberals, progressive liberals, he calls them, um, want to promote equality and, and, and autonomy. The equality thing isn't working at all. Um, and that's part of what we, classical liberals would say is because nature has made us unequal and that's the way things work. But that part hasn't worked at all. But what has worked is breaking down those traditional institutions. So like the individual autonomy half of leftism is working or you know, mm-hmm. succeeding. Um, working is more of a judgment call. But also on the right, you know, you, like you're saying, we want to promote you know, virtue and values, but also free markets. Well, the free market thing's doing mm-hmm. great. Yeah, the free trade thing is doing great. That's uh, everybody's very successful at that. But the other half of it, not so great. You know, virtues are falling away. Government's been unable to replace the institutions it's effectively destroyed in Deneen's telling. So, like each each half of the liberal equation is getting it half right, and you know, or succeeding halfway at their agenda. But the result is that each is succeeding at the destructive half of its agenda without building up the thing it thought was going to replace it. Right. And it's almost like the, the, the classical liberal side of the agenda is what's effective. So, so for conservatives, the free market, you know, giving people as much economic freedom as possible, that's working. But on the other half of conservatives, the tradition, the hierarchy, making sure there's good cultural values. Well, that actually runs contrary to, to the, you know, liberal project, mm-hmm. enlightenment project. And so that's what's failing. And on the flip side, for progressives, the Enlightenment, you know, a liberal ideal of of individual autonomy and and giving, you know, individuals like as much freedom as possible in the decisions in their daily lives. Well, that's working, but their you know desire to impose like all these uh, you know economic constraints and to and to level. Uh, and uh, redistribute well that's where they struggle a little bit because that actually runs contrary to the to the liberal project so i i I think you've really hit your hit the nail on you know something really fascinating about his argument which is that again liberalism is failing he says because it's succeeding yeah aspects of the liberal, uh, liberal enlightenment ideal classical liberal it's actually working it's when we try to run against the grain you know and keep that keep good culture you know or 
that sort of thing. That's that's where we're, it's falling short. And yeah, and that's where it's kind about. of it's kind of running past what von Mises said it should be. You know, is where yeah. he emphasized several times in that book we discussed last week that liberalism is not a universal philosophy of life. It's just a mm-hmm. just a way to run your state, your economy. But it, Tadine shows us that a hundred years later, it's it ignores those boundaries, and it kind of has to because everything's connected. You know, if, if you successfully teach people that we are all autonomous individuals. And he talks about this with the locks, you know, choice consent type argument of how we organize society. He's, you know, Locke represented that as describing humanity. Deneen says it's not really, it's prescribing humanity. It's saying, you know, this is, we are autonomous, but he said, you know, in some ways, liberalism says we're autonomous in every way. And mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I think he, yeah. he takes exep- exception to the whole sort of, origin story of liberalism that Locke tells us the idea that we were once these atomized folk drifting about in the state of nature and came together to form governments. And I think he would say that we always have had things beyond the self, you know, the, the family, the tribe, you know, that, that predate any sort of thinking, you know, even animals run in packs, you know, I mean, it's, so I think to represent early humans as, full-on autonomous individuals living in a state of nature with no other attachments that they didn't willingly consent to. Deneen says that we, we're starting out with kind of a lie here. That's that's mm-hmm. never been true. And if it was just a myth, an origin story, that would be okay. But because liberalism is based on that, it kind of imposes that. And then when you make a choice that's contrary to that, as he, he talks about in some of the later chapters on education and, and, and culture, it's seen as not a free choice. You know, if you choose tradition, progressive liberals especially will say, well, you're just, you know, you've got that false consciousness going on. You've got, yeah, yeah you're exactly. mixed up by the old ways, the old, you know, pre-liberal ways. We need the government to clear that out. Then you can make the right choice, which is mm-hmm. autonomy, freedom, you know, uh, and nobody telling you what to do. Yeah, exactly. And let, let's put a fine point on it because he says the right and left cooperate in the expansion of both statism and individualism, as you've described. While conservative liberals express, we read this already, undying hostility to state expansion, they need the government to secure national and international markets. And while progressive liberals declaim the expansive state, they insist that it must be limited when it comes to enforcement of manners and morals preferring the open marketplace in matters of sexual practice and, and infinitely fluid sexual identity. <laughs> I think it was great. What I like about this is it, you know, it, it really puts a, he's making a broader argument about, about the, the enlightenment, you know, liberal classical liberal project. He's, he's really offering some serious insights about how conservatives and liberals in at least contemporary American sense, uh, progressives and, and conservatives uh, approach you know, government because conservatives, they don't want to, you know, they, they, they actually do want to have a, a more active traditional culture and progressives, they want to eliminate it completely. Like we don't want any enforcement of manners and morals at all. We want to throw off tradition and hierarchy and, and, uh, you know, white privilege and whatever else. And, uh, on the other hand, like conservatives, we want as much freedom as possible in the economic sphere and progressives are like, no, we need, we need 
all kinds of interventions in the economic sphere to, to level and make sure that it's completely equal outcomes. And he says the only part of the conservative agenda that has been successful is economic liberalism, including deregulation, globalization, and the protection of titanic economic inequalities. You get the strong sense that Deneen does not like inequality either. But yeah. <laughs> anyway, the only part of the left's agenda, on the other hand, that has triumphed has been the project of personal autonomy and especially sexual autonomy. I found that to be a really great insight. Yeah, and I think he kind of gets at the point of the changing meaning of the word liberty to begin with, too. Because when he... Um, autonomy, it made sense in the original definition of liberty, too, which, besides having this background of virtue, it, it, it meant not just the absence of ruler, it meant self-rule. You know, and he talks a lot about how in, in the Enlightenment times, the whole point of of education and of, of learning was to, to learn how to rule the self, you know, to, you know, constrain the sort of destructive desires that all of mankind has, you know, to live a virtuous life. And that having learned that you don't need a king or a parliament or a church bearing down on you and making you behave. Mm -hmm. And if we're all educated in liberty, and in the and in the good virtues and the, and the, the classic virtues, then you know, that self rule will replace government rule, and we can all we can differ slightly on what exactly that path to virtue is. Just as we, you know, from the beginning of of this republic, have always had different religions and different cultural, you know, ingredients that led to this American culture. But those things had to be there because. It wasn't just libertinism that the founding fathers wanted. It was, it was uh, just trusting us each to abide by the virtues that they all recognized as good. So as that as that dies away, as that autonomy expands so much that you know people question even those basic things that had persevered for thousands of years, even those virtues that the ancient Greeks identified and, and early Christians and and other leaders and philosophers have had kept as that passes away then then we do pass into sort of libertinism which is that sort of you know infinite uh, sexual uh, smorgasbord that he was talking about that sort of you know and then also that that market smorgasbord that sort of you know because i think he thinks that the free market the, the real free market the kind of like libertarian free market is also antithetical to humanity's traditions because mm -hmm. it is i mean it's it's you could call it an advance which i think in most ways it is but it's different than the way our ancestors lived you know there were always rules if you read medieval history there's rules about how much a person can be paid for his labor and it was set in law you know or where it wasn't in law it was deeply in custom you know that you get a pound a year or whatever you know or two shillings a week you know it was it was it was set and people had a sort of cultural basis for that. And it got disrupted because of inflation and different things. But it was, the, the free market was not the place where civilization was built. We built toward that. But I think his point is, you know, in destroying that, it's, it's similar to destroying the, uh, the other traditions that bolstered liberalism in the beginning. Yeah, I mean, basically what he's doing is highlighting the downsides of the free market, mm -hmm. right? I mean, we, we, I think you and I 
clearly see the benefits of the free market and von Mises last week and Milton Friedman, you know, economic freedom has built this amazing civilization. You know, we're doing a podcast over the internet. How do we maintain the, you know, the old Downton Abbey style uh, economy where you had rich landowners and then just a bunch of servants? Well, we would never have the abundance that we have now. And so it's amazing. And I'm a, um, a huge proponent. But Deneen is going to highlight the realistic downsides. And in several of our other readings, you know, uh, Alan Carlson on the family and, you know, others, there is a downside to all this. And that is it, it pulls people apart and creates a economic man. And, and, you know, and what that means is it kind of tears at communities and, and we lose some of the value of, you know, working together in the same fields or, you know, getting together to, to raise a, a barn or something like that. And, and instead we, we have very specialized careers and, and, uh, and that actually has a degrading effect on, on the culture. I, th- I think he overplays it a bit too. The idea of supply and demand, the basis of the free market is true. And it's something that you see all over the world, no matter how many governments try to suppress it. You see it in pre-modern societies. You know, I mean, I think he's kind of hearkening back to this pre-modern idea, like I was talking about, of a more regulated market, regulated by custom and whatnot. But then you also, if you read history, you see things like like after the the worst incidences of the, the Black Plague in Europe, where a third of the population died. Mm-hmm. One of the one of the problems you see in the aftermath of that is uh, the peasants realize that their labor is now a uh, there's less supply, and they start demanding more money. Mm-hmm. They start mm-hmm. moving to cities if they can, and then the feudal lords sort of think like you can't leave. You know you can, no this is the this is the rate. You know our grandfathers and great grandfathers paid this rate to your grandfathers and great grandfathers, and that's it. That's the custom, that's tradition. And, you know, even these people who were not educated people, they're the peasants, you know, a lot of them were, but they had, they, they still understood this, this thing that like, wait a minute, there's only one of me where there used to be two, you know, maybe you could kick in a few more, you know, shillings and, uh, you know, spread the wealth around because now all of a sudden I've got the advantage. And that is the same thing that goes on in every labor market today. You know, if there's a lot of laborers, their wages go down. If there's a few, they're able to uh, extract more for themselves. Mm-hmm. And so I think that I think he's he's pinning this all on liberalism. This idea that you know labor as a as a commodity, but it's a pre-liberal idea because it is. I mean, in that sense, liberalism is describing humanity. It's not you know asking us to conform to this archetype. It it it's true, <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. and I think I think. That's why the free market does work, and that's why it can't be suppressed because it's true. Because supply and demand is a real thing. Yeah. So I think I, I get what he's saying that you know it can be taken too far, and I think that's a lot of what this book is. Is like these are good ideas, but you can take it too far. And sometimes we do. Um, sometimes we do kind of dehumanize each other in market transactions, but it's it's a real part of humanity is negotiating supplies and demands and and markets. They they arise spontaneously. That's nature. The thing that he says we should conform to. I mean, that is also a part of nature. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So he has a, an extended co- a discussion about the education system and, and how on the one hand it, it does 
very efficiently prepare you know individuals students to join the the free market and to step in line and get a job and you know get have a career and, and that sort of thing but he he shares some of the same critiques as Alan Bloom you know the closing of the american mind and others who say he says Deneen says students are taught by most of their humanities and social science professors that the only remaining political matter at hand is to equalize respect and dignity accorded to all people even as those institutions are mills for sifting the economically viable from those who will be mocked for their backward views on trade, immigration, nationhood, and religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. The near unanimity of po- political views represented on college campuses is echoed by the omnipresent belief that an education must be economically practical, culminating in a high-paying job in a city populated by like-minded college graduates who will continue to reinforce their keen outrage over inequality while enjoying its bounteous fruits. I love this so much. Yeah. And it was, it's kind of hidden, you know, he, I was like, wait a sec, did he just say, and, and, uh, but it's, it's such a, I think just a, such a biting critique of stuff, you know, the situation that I see, you know, I work in Washington DC where there's a lot of, you know, smart, successful people went to college and, and they're spending their whole life like screaming outrage over inequality while at the same time, like, you know, this, you, you go to Yale and uh, you're this starry-eyed idealist, but you know, like almost half the class goes to Wall Street, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's just and and scream and about and he says the keen outrage over inequality, while at the same time, like pulling in these three hundred thousand dollars salaries when you're only twenty six years old. And it's just, I mean, it's just the the irony, and it just it, it's it's annoyed me for a really long time. Yeah, I mean, you get all, everybody who's like. Like Pete Buttigieg is complaining about inequality. Yeah, exactly. yeah. You go to you, you left Indiana. You went to work for McKinsey. Yeah, you, know, you make the big money. He at least went back to his hometown. That's different than most because yeah, these. I, I think. Well, I mean, I, it might have been the same chapter. He this this really stood out to me. He said that elite universities are the uh, educational equivalent of strip mining, <laughs> identifying economically valuable raw materials in every city town and hamlet they strip off that valuable commodity process it in a distant location and render the products economically useful for productivity elsewhere and that's it i mean that's if people went away to college and learned all these things and then went back and were able to get those good jobs back where they came from or into or a different place like it it would be less disruptive but mm-hmm, a lot mm-hmm. of what you're being trained for in these in these places is something I mean, you you can't work for those kind of consultancies or financial firms in South Bend or in uh, Waterloo, Iowa. You know, you've yeah. got to, you can you can do it in in New York. You can do it in Washington. You can do it in San Francisco. You know, and maybe to a lesser extent, some of the other big cities, you know, Chicago, Philly, Boston. You know, but it's Strip mining was a great. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's, it's a great analogy. We're just going off and taking the tops off of mountains where those people used to form. You know, if you if you had a college education from one of these small cities or large towns a hundred years ago, you would you would form the elite of that town. You would be the, the natural leaders of your town. You know, and and you would start a business in your town or run for mayor or you know do. You know, maybe you'd be a professor. Yeah, exactly. In one of these scattered universities that are out there in the world. Now it's it's really just it's all drawing in. It's all like the 
the whirlpool at the bottom of the bathtub when when the drains when the drain plugs let out. And we got the data so, on this in it, the it, Charles Murray episode. Yeah, and, and he gave this great argument, and we've you know this is something obviously you and I have concentrated on quite a bit throughout the the, the history of the podcast. What makes this even more interesting, I think, for Deneen uh, telling us here is that what he's saying is that the classical liberal project it was so it's really successful at what it was supposed to do and it's doing that you know like we it's not this isn't a, a phenomenon that was that just kind of came came about by chance what he's saying is this is always the way it was going to be you know and again once again liberalism fails by succeeding so efficiently you know like it succeeded so efficiently at strip mining at taking the best and brightest and moving them out of uh, newton iowa and over to San Francisco or New York or and in these new uh, uh, coastal tech centers or whatever else these are where the these are where the jobs are being created and Danine is gonna, is basically arguing to us like this is how it's always going to be because this is the direction that that uh, the liberal project takes us if you want efficient free market this is what happens it's it's going to find a way to get the and and what's what does it leave in its wake. Well, we see right now, I mean, rural areas are just suffering and just seriously struggling. You know, uh, we have uh, an increase in opioid epidemic. You know, we have the fact that, you know, a lot of these folks don't even have broadband in some rural areas. And how are they supposed to com- compete at all, in, you know, in the economy? And Janine's going to say, well, the free market liberal project, well, it doesn't really care because it's trying to get the, you know, it's trying to make the most efficient use out of the out of the talent that's available. Yeah. And that efficiency sort of imposes a, a, he calls an anti-culture, not, not a replacement culture, but just the absence of culture, this sort of universal blah culture that is imposed over all the individual local cultures that used to predominate. And in, in the economy, it's the same. It's, it's that, like you said, efficiency, that's, that's the goal and it's work. It, it is very efficient to do, to do things this way. To, I mean, concentrations of wealth are more efficient than scattered wealth. But what it makes is a culture, he says, it's not, that it doesn't have the three cornerstones of human experience, those being nature, time, mm-hmm. and place. Mm-hmm. The things that, that Edmund Burke and other traditionalist conservatives say are the, the foundation of culture, you know, that, Things are different in different places and across time, you know, we have, you know, Burke talked about the well, traditional culture being a sort of conglomeration of past, present and future and agreement among all generations to continue certain things. And liberalism and its, its timelessness is not timeless in the uh, lasting forever sense, but in the absence of time, in the fact that now is what's important. And the progressives will talk about the future. Um, they'll never talk mm-hmm, about the past. Mm-hmm. Conservatives sometimes talk about the past, but even many of us are not are really more about what's good today, and especially in the economic spheres, what's good. It's not about building something. It's about you know getting that profit, beating expectations, pleading the consultants that we've gathered here from around the country and concentrated in New York, and that. Um, Sort of rootlessness of the anti-culture is that what really Denine sees this as a significant problem. Uh-huh. Um, it's 
Yeah, I'm, I think he sees it as a bigger problem maybe than I do because I think a lot of this is just the results of technology. Technology was always going to displace some local ideas because now you have access to other ideas and you can see if they like you like them better. But it also contributes to that uh, sense of dislocation mm-hmm. that we've heard people talk about a lot. You know, when everything changes so quickly and the things you depended on are all wiped away, what happens? And you know, like you talk about opioid addiction, yeah, people turn to other things. You know, people who can't handle it, they break and they turn to substance abuse or they turn to insane ideologies. You know, they, they go Antifa or they mm-hmm. go, they yeah, go all yeah. right. They go, they go, you know, fascist or whatever. And it's because we want something. And uh, liberalism, as Deneen tells it, is the primary driver in knocking away those somethings. Mm-hmm. So. And along with uh, on the economic side is also on the side of culture, he says, that the liberal project creates this monoculture. It's very efficient at creating this monoculture where mm-hmm. folks on the left are, they want to, you know, it's a celebration of diversity and, and we, we need, you know, uh, multiculturalism and, and that sort of thing. But what he's going to say is actually by, you know, sort of celebrating all that, what's really happening is that the liberal enlightenment project, it's, it's creating a single monoculture. He says, Liberal legal structures and the market system mutually reinforce the deconstruction of cultural variety in favor of a legal and economic monoculture. Liberal individualism demands the dismantling of culture. And as culture fades, Leviathan, that's the big government, waxes and responsible liberty recedes. Liberal culture is the vacuum that remains when local experience has been eviscerated. The homogenous celebration of every culture effectively means no culture at all. And isn't that amazing? Because I think, you know, if I listen to my parents or grandparents, it just seemed like when, when they were younger, they had their own little enclave of, mm-hmm. there, there is a kind of a broader American culture, but they all also had their own little enclaves of uh, local cultures and based maybe around a religious group or, you know, an ethnicity that's, that, you know, quite a few folks live together in the same community. And they had those. And what's happening with the, with the free market and with this, focus on, you know, civil liberties and individualism, what happens is that, you know, again, there's positives for those, but the downside is what it starts to do is just tear at the, those local cultures and create this one monoculture that's, you know, my, my kids don't have like a local culture. Instead they have whatever's on TikTok, which the, you know, the whole, (laughs) the whole country, all, all 10 year olds are watching or whatever else, you know what I mean? And so it just has a, a very, it's just a very efficient at not only strip mining the the brightest and the best, but also it's very efficient at sanding down and really destroying any any local culture at all. And that's a big loss, I think. And what it also means is, all of a sudden, we don't we no longer feel you know that kinship to someone close because what difference does it make if you live? I mean, what 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 real difference in culture, at least not not in economic opportunities, but in terms of culture, is there that much of a difference between you know, like Pennsylvania and Virginia. I mean, mm, not yeah, anymore. Yeah, you know, right. I mean, they, they probably used to be quite you, a bit. Used to be a big deal. Yeah. But now it's, and that's why you I, you hear that sometimes on the left. It's like, why are the states important? We're all the same country. Who cares? Yeah. Right. Uh, but it, and people it don't even to pay attention to local important. politics or state politics <clears throat> anymore. Yeah. This is the main reason because it's, it's not as, it's not as pressing. It's not as important. 
Yeah, and just the efficiency of the distribution of that culture or that anti-culture. I mean, you made me think of, uh, I once was looking at National Geographic years ago, had an article about the Gobi Desert. And uh, one of the pictures was in some uh, some guy's, you know, pretty primitive dwelling with like a one-room kind of joint. Very, you know, looked like a traditional kind of dwelling. And then on the wall was a poster of Allen Iverson. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And I was just, I was struck by that back then. It's kind of stayed with me. Like, how did this dude, this Mongolian guy in the Gobi Desert, how does he know about the NBA? And why does he care? Yeah. You know, but he does. And, you know, like the NBA is huge in China now. And we saw that, some of the problems with that recently. But even back then, I was like, wow, this is amazing that American culture has circled the globe, not because. You know, we didn't airdrop those posters in there. You know, it, was, it wasn't like our government said, you know, you know we got to promote basketball. It's just people, technology and markets have made this stuff available. And, and there's probably some, that guy's grandparents might be like, why are you messing around with that stuff? Who cares? That's not our thing. But uh, yeah, the, the, the liberal world has been extremely efficient in distributing you know, whatever it wants to distribute. And it, well, it, let's think it, about clothes, for example. I mean, yeah. does, you know, the, the Chinese premier also wears a suit and tie, you know, mm-hmm. and I mean, the, the kids in Bangladesh are wearing t-shirts that say Nike on them or something like that. Well, and, yeah, they're, they're making them too. And making them, yeah, that's true. Yeah. So, but you know, the traditional clothing, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. uh, even, you know, food is changing. I mean, I, I know, and I know in China they eat Chinese food, but more and more every day. You know, the sharing of cultures. On the one hand, you know, on the left we'd say sharing of cultures, multiculturalism. What Danina's saying is like, nope, it's the destruction of culture headed towards a monoculture. Yeah, it's just going to be McDonald's everywhere. Which you know, I like McDonald's, but it's, I I get why you might be annoyed at it if it's not your culture, it's not your food, and all of a sudden they're moving in and nobody likes it and they're forgetting about the old ways it's yeah it's discomforting it makes that sort of anomie that we've been coming back to again and again the sort of Mm -hmm. feeling of dislocation well let's spend a a last quick minute on his remedies which you know when you and i were texting back and forth i was like well these are not particularly novel or or inspiring but he does have some remedies Mm -hmm. he says uh you know so what can we do about this situation well he says we should focus on developing practices that foster new forms of culture, household economics, and polis life. Develop community of family centered on rituals surrounding birth, coming of age, marriage, and death. He says that the ability to do and make things for oneself should be prized above consumption. Skills of building, fixing, cooking, planting, preserving, and composting. What we need today, he says, are practices fostered in local settings, focused on the creation of new and viable cultures, economics grounded in virtuosity within the households, and the creation of a civic polis life. And I, I, I really like these, of course, and mm-hmm. it just sounds a whole lot like you know religious communities that I'm part of. Yeah, sounds and, great. Uh, and I appreciate that, but he doesn't really tell us how, how we're going to go ahead and do that within the construct of this destructive you know, liberal project, you know, it's kind of like he, he goes through and says, there's nothing you can do about it. It's destroying everything, but do this thing. And it's kind of like, well, he doesn't, he doesn't really give us a strong argument for why or how we could actually do it. Yeah. I mean, these are all things people like, but they're also 
inefficient and that's yeah efficiency is crowded out inefficiency and you know Mm -hmm. maybe living in a a world where we really listen to economists probably too much has made us take on some of their values of efficiency being the highest good and like it's a good it's there's a lot of good things about efficiency but uh I think it, but for cooking, for example, like, you know, we, yeah, we have four kids and we do our own cooking and that's what I grew up with. And, uh, my wife does a lot and I do quite a bit too. And we're like the only ones that we know of that cook yeah. our own food. Yeah. <laughs> Even the neighbors who have kids, they buy their food every single, you know, they, they buy dinner and probably most of the listeners, maybe all the listeners of this podcast, they, they buy their food from a, from a restaurant or something like that. So when he says, you know, these types of things, cooking, for example, should be prized above consumption. I do prize it. Yeah, I do too. But there's a lot of people who don't because they're like, yeah, you know, home cooking would be, I know it would be better for me, but uh, I just, I don't want to take the time to do it. You yeah. Know, I don't need And to. when everybody's working too, it's tough. I mean, you, that's, that's the other thing. It's more efficient. You know, we talk, it's like the, um, the gains from trade, you know, it's more efficient for us to work at our jobs. And if somebody else work at the job of making food and then we, trade our money for that food and then you know it's it's efficient but yeah i think there's something to cooking whenever we whenever people talk about their grandparents and you know, memories of them and stuff it's often oh grandma used to bake this thing and i used to help her and these are precious memories to people and you hear them again and again that's part of our our family culture yeah and yeah, uh that's great. it isn't efficient you know grandma's not as efficient as a factory but uh there's there's something more there that i think to need say we're missing out on mm-hmm all right. What's your closing thought? Uh, it's a, this, this book made me think, you know, I mean, he, he has some, some deep thoughts on liberalism uh, that the zeitgeist today is, is to question a lot of these ideas again. I mean, a lot of the populist uprising in our elections has been along these lines. He, he I think was writing this before, the rise of Trump, although it came out afterwards, but that sort of populist revolution in the countryside. And you see it in the left too, with sort of Bernie AOC wing of things. Uh, people are pushing back against liberal liberalism as a, a monoculture. And uh, I think it's a good book for helping us understand it and understand why. And, mm-hmm. and, and to some extent where we go from here. Yeah, and I, I really thought this was a very thought-provoking book. And if anything, that's what I really enjoy is when somebody pushes me to think differently and see something through mm-hmm. a, a different lens. And this is probably the my favorite book since you know since Fukuyama that we've read in Conservative Mind yeah. Podcast. And so I, I recommend it to folks. You know, it seems a little bit deep, but really he's getting at some pretty straightforward things, which is the upside of you know this uh, American liberal enlightenment project has worked and it's worked really well. And now to your point, like we're, we're, we're at a crossroads where people are starting to say, wait, actually there's some problems here. You know, there is a, there's an opportunity gap or whatever. And, you know, I don't feel as tight knit and as close to people. You know, there's a loneliness epidemic where 200 years ago, could you have been lonely when you're with, you know, people all day, every day? I mean, you're, you're, you know Mm -hmm. who you are and you know where you fit. Uh, in your family and in your community. And now, you know, people are feeling adrift and alone and um, getting married later or not at all. And, and, uh, and he really points to some of the cause of that. And he doesn't give us, you know, I was a little critical of his, of his remedies, but 
maybe there just really isn't any, you know, maybe, maybe we're kind of stuck in this, in which case it should really inform our, our policy choices too. Like, can, can we really fix some of this stuff? And if identifying what are some of the core causes are, I think that Deneen, we didn't really get into this, but I think that he's coming from that same sort of Catholic communitarian position that, you know, Sorab Amari is, you know, mm-hmm. really a, a rethink of, I, I think Marco Rubio is moving in this direction too, kind of a, a rethink of kind of this bedrock core um, assumption of, uh, of classical liberalism. And uh, that's both scary and, and uh, but also interesting. So, all right. So that's it for Patrick Deneen. Next time, we're going to read a book called The Once and Future Worker by Oren Cass. That was published in 2018 also. This book is going to, I think is going to be a perfect follow-on to what we've just read um, with Deneen because he's he's also going to identify these and he's going to, from a conservative perspective, kind of from the right, he's going to say how to remedy some of these problems. Okay, see you next time.